Remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. I will not participate in that. I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetuate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. Martin Luther King Jr. everybody and welcome to The Breathing Room, a space where people of color and faith can come together to have our lived experiences acknowledged, to witness each other's journey, and to take a collective deep breath. My name is Kevin Holland. This is episode two, and the title is Every Word Has Consequences, Every Silence Too. That quote I read at the top was by 20th century French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. It speaks to the consequences of silence. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Now I know we hear that, but I am not convinced that most people of faith believe that. I think that churches and Christians throughout centuries have developed the ability to stay silent about things that matter. And I know right now we're wondering as a church how to meet this moment. I think there's still a question in the church as to what should we do? I've heard that from many people. Okay, in light of the things that are going on with race these days, what should we do? And truthfully, I think there's a minority of Christians, and I'm just speaking from an I, me, and my perspective, in my orbit, in my circle, I would say there is a minority of Christians who feel like 2020 was a turning point. It was an awakening. It was an unmasking. It was eye-opening, and they'll never be the same. I count myself as one of those people, but then I'm still the pastor of a multiracial church, and in our church, there are many different groups of people at different places. And as I said, I think there are a minority who have been changed, who've gone through a second conversion, as it were, who now are not content with just not being racist, but insist on being actively anti-racist and believe not only that they as individual Christians need to be that way, but churches, the small groups that they are part of, need to be that way as well. I would say we've got more Christians that I know, and these are dear friends of all races and ages and stages that feel unsure, moved to some degree, but they're just not sure what to do. And they're still feeling like it's just not the church's place to, or or an individual Christian's place to speak out against someone who is espousing racist policies or who is engaging in racist practices. 
they feel like that's not the purview of the church. You know, Jesus, I've heard Christians say Jesus didn't call out Caesar. He didn't go after or publicly rebuke the corrupt, evil leaders of his time. So we shouldn't, as though that's a negative warrant. Because Jesus didn't do it, then we shouldn't do it. Rather than, okay, Jesus lived in a different context. But what would the spirit of Jesus call one to do based on what he taught in Luke 4, in Matthew 23, and in other places? Or the spirit of the minor prophet. So in our church, we've got some that just feel sort of stuck, paralyzed. I don't know what to do. You know, if I if I say something, then I alienate people. If I don't say something, I alienate other people. And so you just feel stuck. I also feel like we've got some people in our church that are adamantly against speaking out on issues, moral issues, because no matter how many times I or others say this is not a left versus right issue. This is a right versus wrong issue. This is a justice versus injustice issue. This is a love versus hate issue. But no matter how many times I've said that, we have some in our church that insist on seeing it purely through a political lens and they feel like issues around racial reconciliation, social justice, speaking out against systemic racism. They feel that is moving the church in a leftward progressive political direction, and they don't see it as moral. And I think it's by their choice. And also, we've got people that because we're speaking out on these issues, we've got some people that feel like because we're doing that, we are tacitly condemning them because they are of a conservative bent politically, which is not the case. There are people of goodwill that are conservative and that are progressive, that are conservative and that are liberal, that are Democratic and Republican and independent. And there are Christians who hide behind their political views and feel like that's off limits. Don't talk to me about my political views. And part of it is because in hiding behind those political views, underneath those views are attitudes, either racial indifference, some racist ideas, some not, but they're not even willing to look and feel offended that someone would even challenge them on those fronts. And so, you know, that's where we are as a church. Fortunately, we have an analog in history that comes to our aid really well. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote the famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And it has so much to teach us about this current moment, so much to teach us in terms of what we should do and what we should consider and the consequences of action and the consequences of inaction, the consequences of speaking and the consequences of being silent. And so I want to read the letter that was the predicate of the letter from a Birmingham jail. Martin Luther King received a letter on April 12th, 1963 from a group of Alabama clergymen challenging him on the nonviolent protest that he was involved in in Birmingham. Martin Luther King responded to that letter with a famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And so I want to read different excerpts of this letter and then make some comments as far as what I think it says to us today and what should inform the choices we make. Because as I quoted in the beginning, words have consequences. Silence does too. So here's the Alabama clergyman's letter to Dr. Martin Luther King, April 12, 1963. 
We, the undersigned clergymen, are among those who in January issued an appeal for law and order and common sense in dealing with racial problems in Alabama. We expressed understanding that honest convictions in racial matters could properly be pursued in the courts, but urged that decisions of those courts should, in the meantime, be peacefully obeyed. Since that time, there has been some evidence of increased forbearance and a willingness to face facts. Responsible citizens have undertaken to work on various problems which cause racial friction and unrest. In Birmingham, recent public events have given indication that we all have opportunity for a new constructive and realistic approach to racial problems. However, we are now confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens directed and led in part by outsiders. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. We agree, rather, with certain local Negro leadership, which has called for honest, open negotiation of racial issues in our area. And we believe this kind of facing of issues can be best accomplished by citizens of our own metropolitan area, white and Negro, meeting with their knowledge and experience of the local situation. All of us need to face that responsibility and find proper channels for its accomplishment. Just as we formally pointed out that hatred and violence have no sanction in our religious and political tradition, we also point out that such actions as incite hatred and violence, however technically peaceful those actions may be, have not contributed to the resolution of our problems. We do not believe that these days of new hope are days when extreme measures are justified in Birmingham. We commend the community as a whole and the local news media and law enforcement officials in particular on the calm manner in which these demonstrations have have been handled. We urged the public to continue to show restraint should the demonstrations continue and the law enforcement officials to remain calm and continue to protect our city from violence. We further strongly urge our own Negro community to withdraw support from these demonstrations and to unite locally in working peacefully for a better Birmingham. When rights are consistently denied, a cause should be pressed in the courts and in negotiations among local leaders and not in the streets. We appeal to both our white and Negro citizenry to observe the principles of law and order and common sense. When I read this letter, I try to imagine the emotional energy of those that wrote it. It's one thing to speak words, and all of us know we can tell when someone is speaking based on just some intellectual concept or theory, and when someone is speaking from the heart and from the emotional center. We know when someone is invested in what they're saying and not as invested in what they're saying. And what strikes me from this letter is that there is emotional energy behind and intent in stopping Stopping the nonviolent protests, which they're saying are leading to violence and insisting that King and others pursue their means through the courts and through observing the laws and having, quote unquote, law and order. What stands out to me, though, is that Birmingham was known to be the most violent, segregated, bigoted city in the country, if not the, then one of the very most. And according to King, the most they had seen unspeakable bombings hate crimes. Of course, the country has a history of lynchings. And somehow the Christians in those churches weren't disturbed enough or moved enough by that blatant, obvious injustice to act or to speak against it. But they were moved by their response to it, even though it was peaceful. And they said it was unwise and untimely. And they said you should go through the proper channels to get this dealt with. 
ignoring the fact that going through the proper channels caused things to be in the place they were. And of course, Brown versus the Board of Education was passed in 1954, making segregation illegal. And this is 1963. And Birmingham's the most segregated city in the entire country. They mentioned that there were some black leaders that agreed with them, some Negro leaders that agreed with them that direct protest was not the way to go. And in every case, whenever there have been efforts for racial justice and for civil rights being made, there are always some of the oppressed class who don't feel as though direct confrontation of the issue is the way to go. They have become adjusted to the status quo and they would rather not rock the boat. They had more energy against the protests than they did against the evil that was being protested. They thought that these efforts were unwise and untimely. And isn't it interesting that those of the dominant class very easily decide the timetable upon which those of the non-dominant class need to operate in terms of securing their freedom. They denounced extreme measures as though the conditions did not merit extreme measures. And very little changes in life in any area without extreme measures, because power does not cede power and change does not come easily. They said that the issues were based on how the oppressed people were feeling rather than what they were actually experiencing. And sometimes that happens when an issue that you bring up is reduced to a feeling rather than a reality. And then they say, hey, we just want you to have common sense. It's easy for those of the dominant culture to decide what common sense is, but we live in two worlds and we know that there are two Americas. And what is common sense to a person of color is definitely different than what is common sense to someone of the dominant culture. Here's Martin Luther King's reply to the Alabama clergyman's letter. Letter from Birmingham City Jail, Dr. Martin Luther King, April 16, 1963. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the 8th century prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of the country. Its unjust treatment of Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any city in this nation. There have been vicious mobs. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block and the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I've longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. 
In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our... Every time I reflect on these remarkable words and I think about the freedom writers and the civil rights activists of the 60s, sometimes teenagers, people that were so young with so much life ahead of them and yet so much conviction, I'm in awe. I just pray and plead with God to have a level of courage similar to them in this time, even though the circumstances are different. Still, injustice is live and well, and we need to have the same level of conviction if we're going to bring about change. Here's some things that stand out from Martin Luther King's response. First, he clarified that he was in Birmingham because injustice was there. And then he referred to the Old Testament prophets who left their localities to go where injustice was and preach against it. King mentioned that police brutality was rampant in Birmingham and was well known, and they had a reputation for it. And in some ways, life has changed radically in terms of civil rights. And in some ways, it hasn't changed that much because police brutality still is a part of our culture and society to this day. It's searing the way that King described the white moderate who was more devoted to order than to justice. When I think about individual Christians I know today in our churches, couldn't that be said of us? What are we more passionate about, order or justice? Keeping the peace or making peace? King lamented the fact that so many times those moderates would communicate that they agreed with the goal, but not with the methods of direct action. And I've heard from different people regarding the struggle for racial justice. I agree with you in principle, but there's not a lot of energy behind it and there's not any action behind it. So it's a similar feeling. This really got me. King would hear white ministers say that their parishioners should obey unjust laws because they're the law. But he longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. Somehow these ministers missed the fact that this was a moral issue and they reduced it to a legal issue. King said, in the face of blatant injustices done to the Negro, these clergymen and churches stood on the sidelines. And then he said, they uttered pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the face of this injustice, like the priest and Levite, they walked by on the other side. They looked away. They saw no evil. They heard no evil. They spoke against no evil. They focused their energies on religious talk and religious teaching that was irrelevant to the life and death struggle that they were facing, and that was trivial by comparison. He said, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid the nation of racial and economic injustice, he'd heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. Now, how can that be if one of the gospel's primary tenets is to love our neighbors as ourselves and Jesus called his followers to love each other as he had loved them? How can you love your neighbor non-socially? How can you love people as Jesus loved you without being social with them? Isn't the nature of being with people social? The gospel is social. There's no such thing as the social gospel and the non-social gospel. It's all social because it's dealing with people making disciples, loving people, serving them, becoming less so that they can become more, and honoring the Imago Dei, the image of God in them. 
The great thing about history is that clarity comes with time. Perhaps some questions to dwell on would serve us well. Who was on the right side of history? Martin Luther King and his followers or the Alabama clergyman? Both, neither, one or the other. As Abraham Lincoln stated in his second inaugural address in 1865, people on both sides prayed to the same God and read the same Bible. And in this instance, both King and his followers and the clergymen were men of the word, men of God. They read the same Bible. They prayed to the same God. They claimed to be followers of the same Jesus and yet chose two very different paths, kind of like today. I think a great question to ask is, what were the consequences of the silence of the clergyman and what were the consequences of the protests of King and his followers? What was different because of them? What didn't change at all because of them? To oppressors and those wanting to do evil, silence is seen as a license to do whatever they want without consequence. The seething racial animus and evil that lived in Birmingham and all over the country in 1963 came to a head in a tragic, heinous event five months after the exchange of letters between King and the Alabama clergyman. The 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed by four members of a local Ku Klux Klan chapter. They planted 19 sticks of dynamite attached to a timing device beneath the steps located on the east side of the church. They injured approximately 20 people and killed four girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. Three of them were 14 and one of them was 11. How did conditions get that bad? It's because people of goodwill are silent in the face of evil and silent in the face of escalating violence and tension. We can only speculate as to what would have happened if people of faith all over Birmingham rose up in solidarity, denouncing racism, segregation, and hatred. The climate that allowed these four evil men to commit this crime might not have been as conducive as it proved to be or as they thought it was. I wonder how many fewer lynchings there would have been in the United States during the Jim Crow era if churches in mass and Christians all over this country had raised their voices in outrage against the obvious injustice and inhumanity. I wonder if slavery would have ended sooner. I wonder if slavery would have taken a foothold had people of faith all throughout this country stood up in defiance and absolute rejection of slavery, as did the Mennonites and the Quakers. It makes me wonder about today, would the over 80 unarmed black men and women who have been shot by police over the past several years in the United States, might that number be smaller if at the first instance, Christians and churches in mass would have stood up and demanded justice and said that we will not abide this. I do know this. The consequences of silence are that more people of color suffer micro and macro aggressions, suffer injustice, suffer brutality, suffer death, suffer loss, suffer inequity and disparity because nothing ever changes unless someone stands in the gap and insists that it change. Of course, the divine ultimately is the one that brings about any change, but he does it through men and women who are devoted to him and are willing to stand for what he stands for, love what he loves, care about what he cares about, who are willing to speak up for justice. I wonder if our churches, or if we as Christians, were transported back in time to 1963. Would we have been protesting in the streets of Birmingham, or would we have been sitting on the sidelines with other good Christians, feeling as though those issues and the social conditions of the oppressed culture had nothing to do with the gospel, had nothing to do with making disciples and loving our neighbors and loving God? I wonder what a conversation between the civil rights heroes and freedom writers of the 60s and us would be like. I wonder what they would tell us. 
I often think about that, actually. On June 27th of last year, our church held a family-friendly rally and protest in honor of Black Lives Matter. It's one of my fondest memories. I have no idea how many people were there, but a friend of mine thought it looked like about 300. It was exhilarating marching with so many people and having people that drove by honk and yell and scream and show their solidarity. These were strangers, people we'd never met of every background, being united and being human and understanding that there is right and wrong, there is justice and injustice. The signs were so moving. I remember one in particular that said silence is no longer an option. Truer words have never been spoken. Spirit help us to see as you see and do as you say. Maybe if silence isn't an option for us, then a generation from now, parents of color won't have to have different conversation with their teenage kids about driving than do those of the dominant culture. Maybe because silence was no longer an option, policing in this country will change. Maybe silence not being an option will help us get to a place where the words Black Lives Matter won't have to be painted in neon yellow on streets throughout this country, and we will have taken steps to a more just society. Thanks again for spending some time in The Breathing Room, a space where people of color and faith can come together to have our lived experiences acknowledged, to witness each other's journey, and to take a collective deep breath. Be sure to subscribe to The Breathing Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. And if you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and a review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or send us an email at thebreathingroompod at gmail.com. For The Breathing Room, I'm Kevin Holland, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.